One of the uh, problems in teaching sequentially through a book of the Bible is that um, when issues come up that you would like to speak to, you hate to break into the middle of your series, and sometimes uh, it takes a while to get around to the particular issue if you're teaching expositorily through a book. So I've been thinking of of, uh, doing something a little different uh, over the next year, and that is uh, about every fifth or sixth week breaking up the series that we're in to speak to some uh, social issue or national issue that we as Christians need to, uh, need to think through as Christians. As someone has put it, we, we need to develop a Christian mind. That is, we need to be able to think biblically about every issue that faces us. And so in line with this goal, um, next week I'm going to speak on how we as Christians ought to look uh, at the subject of abortion. And uh, what I plan to do is uh, preface each message with a column so that uh, I prime the pump a little bit and get you started thinking. And also if you have any friends that are interested in pursuing it further, uh, they can uh, read the column, see what my thinking is, and then uh, hear a, a little fuller exposition of of those ideas on Sunday morning. I want to do this because I want to know what I think about a lot of these things. Some of them I have not thought through, others I have, the arms race being one. Uh, And then also I would like to help all of us think through these matters from a biblical uh, standpoint. So that will be our approach. And I'm thinking of giving you some time at the end of each message to ask questions, maybe five minutes, just to uh, try to clarify any anything that I might confuse you on. All right, let's turn to Isaiah 61, and we're going to interrupt our study in Acts uh, this morning as well in order to prepare our hearts for our time around the Lord's table this morning. Isaiah 61. Many of you are familiar with Byron's poem, My days are in the yellow leaf, the flowers and fruits of love are gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. Byron was 36 when he wrote that. Uh, he wrote those lines, and if if you know anything of his life, you know that he had done himself in. It was his own fault that he was in despair, and perhaps uh, that's the way you feel uh, this morning. In some sense, you've done yourself in. You've. Uh, You're the cause of of the problems that you're experiencing right now, and you're thinking that God himself is done with you. That he's saying, in effect, you've made your bed, now lie in it. You did it to yourself, now you have to get yourself out of this mess. But uh, if you think that way about our Lord, then you don't yet know him as Isaiah knew him. Let me uh, me read the first three verses of, of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for captives and release for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve for Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a, of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, 
a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Now, as I'm sure you know, Isaiah lived a long, long time ago, almost 2,800 years ago, in the 8th century before Christ. He tells us in the introduction to his uh, prophecy that he prophesied during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and those were all unknown names to most of us, except it identifies the exact period and the times in which uh, Isaiah prophesied. It was in the last half of the 8th century uh, B.C., the first, uh, the first uh, 35 chapters of Isaiah are addressed to his contemporaries, the people of his, of his time. And the problem that they were confronting was the Assyrian Empire. They were encroaching from the north and little Judah down to the south was in danger of being overrun. It, it was almost a, a sure thing. And Isaiah tells them, it, it, it's your fault. You did it to yourself. And uh, if you don't return to the Lord, then there will be judgment. But as you may know the story, the, the, the judgment of the Assyrian uh, army, the, the, the rod of God, as Isaiah puts it, was averted narrowly, miraculously, at the last minute. Sennacherib's troops uh, surrounded uh, Jerusalem, and a plague struck them, and they returned home without taking the city. So uh, bear in mind that the first 35 verses are all addressed to that situation, the needs of Isaiah's contemporaries. The chapters that follow, 36, 37, 38, 39, are a sort of historical interlude in which that, uh, that invasion of Sennacherib is described and something of Hezekiah's historic uh, blunder, Hezekiah is a classic example of someone who lived too long. God told him that he was going to die, and he begged for additional years, which God gave him. And in those years that were added to his life, he gave away the secrets of, of uh, the temple treasury. Historians tell us that, that they had over a billion dollars in gold in the treasury at that, at that time, and he told the Babylonians, and that's what later brought about the Babylonian conquest. The Babylon, Babylonians, when they marched west, took Judah, though it was seen to be a very small and insignificant country, and sacked and burned the temple and took, took the gold out of the treasury. The last chapters of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, are all descriptive of a period that's 150 years in the future from Isaiah's time. It takes place in the 6th century. Isaiah, from his position in the 8th century, looks way down through time, 150 years later, and he preaches comfort to the exiles of the Babylonian period. That's the remarkable thing about, about the book of Isaiah. There's this huge jump in time from the 8th century to the 6th century. And Isaiah's standing way back here in the 8th century, and he's looking down through time to the 6th century, and he, and he comforts the exiles who are, who are coming back from Babylon. That, that, that's so like the Lord to arrange in advance for a word of comfort to people that he knew were going to do themselves in. That's, that's the kind of Lord that, that we have. And through these last uh, chapters, the 27 chapters from 40 through uh, 66, there is a, an individual who keeps showing up who's very difficult to identify, a shadowy sort of enigmatic personage that appears on the scene who's called the servant of the Lord who's been variously identified as uh, some portion of the nation of Israel but but more accurately as our Lord Jesus himself. If you, uh, if you turn to the Gospel of Luke, 
chapter 4, you'll see how the New Testament interprets the servant. Luke 4, 13, Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Then he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it, where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. And you'll notice that these are the same words that we read just a moment ago from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And there's some difference here because our Lord is reading from the Greek translation of the of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. There's some difference in wording, but it's clearly the same passage. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he said to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And that, that must have struck like a thunderclap, because what he was saying is, I'm the servant. That was, that was predicted back in Isaiah 61 who would come to comfort Israel during this time of distress. Even though Israel came back from exile in 586 B.C., for almost 600 years they languished, and they were in spiritual exile even though they, they were back in the land, and they kept waiting for the servant who would come and, and, and give them justice. And when he came, it was, it was our Lord Jesus. Very clear, that's who the servant is. Now let's turn back to Isaiah 61. And look at this description of, of our Lord. There are two main ideas here, two, two verbs that carry forward the main uh, ideas in the passage. One is that he is anointed, and the second, that he was sent. Uh, our English word anointing comes from the Hebrew word from which we get the word Messiah. An anointed individual was a Messiah. There were many Messiahs in the Old Testament. The priests were anointed, and thus they were Messiah. They were Messiahs. The prophets were. The kings were as a sign of God's favor on them. And the, the pouring out of oil on their head was a picture of the pouring out of the Spirit of God upon these individuals to undertake a particular task. So there are many Messiahs. But, but they knew in the back of their minds that all of these so-called messiahs or anointed ones were simply uh, pictures or illustrations or, or uh, uh, symbolic people who, who represented the one who was coming, who was the messiah par excellence. And, and even the rabbis knew as they read Isaiah 61 that the reference here to this one who is anointed was to the, the messiah, the unique messiah. And then secondly, the servant says he was sent, which is probably where the writer of, of, of the book of Hebrews gets the idea of, of our Lord being an apostle. He's described there as the high priest and apostle of our faith because the word apostle means someone who's sent. Now, what follows are a series of, of uh, infinitives that describe what he was sent to do. The fact of his anointing speaks of his person. He was the Messiah. This description of the work that he was sent to do speaks of simply that, his work. So we have a picture of Jesus, first of all, his person and his work. And the work is spelled out 
in these uh, infinitives that follow, to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and so forth. There are eight of these in sets of two. Each of the couplets are parallel. That's uh, the way the Hebrews rhyme things. They, they don't rhyme sounds as we do. We like, we like that sound of repeated uh, sounds. They, they like the idea of repeated ideas. And that's what you have in this, in this poem. You have one idea stated and then a parallel idea stated. Four separate things, each of them stated uh, as a pair. Now, the first work is in verse 1. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim or to bind up the brokenhearted. The poor were the poor and oppressed and afflicted of the exile, the brokenhearted, refers to the same uh, individuals. Those that had been had been uh, pressed out of out of measure. They'd been harassed and hounded and broken and and they were discouraged. They had nothing to live for. Life had turned sour. And there were like so many people today to whom life has, has dealt a bad hand. Their mates have left them. Their children are in rebellion. They're uh, Without a paycheck, they're physically afflicted. People have disappointed them. And they're, they're like these poverty-stricken exiles. They're, they're down and out. But uh, to these, he announces good news. He was sent to preach good news. That uh, phrase, preach good news is a translation of one Hebrew word that basically means to encourage another. That's what Jesus came to do, to give us encouragement, to buck us up, to build us up, to announce good news in place of bad news. Every time I read the Statesman or Time magazine, I'm impressed with how much bad news is is uh, available to us today. But in, in, in the in the midst of all of that bad news, here's good news. Here's someone who came to encourage, who wants to pick us up and, and, and get us going, lift us out of our depressed state, and give us what we need to, to get going again. Earlier in, in Isaiah, in Isaiah 41, there is a description of, uh, I'm sorry, 42. There is a description of the servant, one that was read earlier in the service. 42.1, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. That's a description of his demeanor, his manner. He isn't harsh or coarse or rude. He doesn't run roughshod over us. He's gentle. He's soft-spoken, he's quiet, he's gentle in his love. And then we're told a bruised reed he will not break or a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You get the picture, a bruised reed is uh, just a fragile uh, reed that's been bent and broken and, and a nearly extinguished wick is the wick of an oil lamp that had been snuffed out and, and there was only a only a smoldering wick. But Isaiah says the servant doesn't trample underfoot broken reeds. He doesn't extinguish dimly glowing 
uh, flaxes, and perhaps that's the way you feel this morning. You, you really don't have much life left. Well, he wants to encourage you. He doesn't say when you, you come to him in your weakness and, and uh, in your feelings of futility and frustration. He doesn't say, what, what, are you back here again? I told you last week what to do. Stop your crying and whining, sniveling. Shape up. Be a man. No, no, that's not the way he is. He, he gives an encouraging word. And furthermore, we're told he, he binds up the brokenhearted. That's a great picture. He puts band-aids on broken hearts. Uh, do you know why your children run home to have you bandage their skin knees? It's not because they're afraid of infection. My, my kids have always had a good working relationship with dirt and germs, and they, they get along very well with, with, with uh, dirt. But when they would fall down and skin their knees, they'd run home and they'd want a bandage because they, they want the, the tender, loving care that goes with the application of that band-aid, the, the, the O's and the oohs and the ahs and the hugs and, and all the rest of it. And that's the picture that Isaiah is, is trying to evoke in their minds. Someone to whom you can go when you spiritually skin your knees. When you've fallen and you're, you're hurt and you're beat and you're sunk and you've had it and you're finished. And there's nobody around who cares. There's no one who wants to talk to you again. Everyone's tired of hearing your complaints, but he never is. He never is. That's a great word of encouragement. That's good news. The second work of the Savior is to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for the prisoners. The captives were uh, the people that had, that had been sent off into exile for their own sins. It was their own fault. Isaiah, Hosea, the other prophets kept telling them, if you don't, uh, if you don't turn from this course, if you don't return to the Lord, you're going to experience God's wrath. But they didn't listen. They went on and, and they got themselves in this mess. The, the verb is... Uh, this translated captives here is, is passive. Those that have been ensnared by their own sin. It's their fault. And sin will do that to us, you know. It really will. Jesus said that if we serve sin, it will become our master. And Paul put it even more clearly in Romans 6. He, he says, if you, you shouldn't think that you can sin and escape the consequences because sin becomes our master, we're enslaved to it. We think we can temporize with sin, we can play around with it, we can go in a little ways and, and deliver ourselves, but we can't when we harbor a grudge or nurse a grievance or wallow in self-pity or, or uh, entertain uh, impure fantasies. Sin gets us, drags us down. In further, far, farther than we ever thought we would go. As Augustine said, sin is the punishment for sin. God just lets us go. And we make these awful messes of our lives. And, and we cry out to God for deliverance. And in the back of our mind, we think he's not going to help us because we, we got ourselves into this mess. But that's not the sort of love that God has for us. The servant says that uh, he came... To proclaim freedom for, for captives and release for prisoners. The word that's translated freedom here is another one of those beautiful word pictures in Hebrew. It 
It's used to describe a swallow in flight in other places. Free, uninhibited flight. I suppose our idiom today would be free flight without any restraints or restrictions. Sets us free from the past, the memory of the past, the grief and the guilt of our sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And then the third work of the Savior is in verse 2. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Uh, This phrase, the year of the Lord's favor, is used by Ezekiel in his prophecy to refer to the uh, so-called year of Jubilee. In Israel's calendar, every 50th year was a year where, at least theoretically, everything went back to the way it was when they first went into the land. All land that had been bought and sold went back into the hands of the original owners, those who had been given that land by right of inheritance. All slaves were freed. All debts were, were forgiven. And uh, things went back to the way they, they ought to be. That was every 50 years. As far as we know, Israel never, uh, they, they, they never practiced that, that law. But it was always there in the law, in their statute books, to remind them of the time when someone would come who would once for all set everything right, free the slaves, give people the power to live as, as they ought to live. And this idea of a year of Jubilee went into the Jewish mind and became a symbol to them of the time when Messiah would come and, and set up his kingdom and there would be justice and peace and order and, and authority and power to live as, as people know they, they ought to live. And if you recall, when Jesus read this, uh, this passage of Scripture, he stopped right in the middle of the line. He came to this line to proclaim the year of the Lord. And he stopped. And then he said, this day, this passage is fulfilled in your mind. They knew exactly what he was saying. The king had come. The messianic era had begun. The golden age was here. The kingdom was being proclaimed. And if men and women would simply submit to to Jesus Christ as Messiah and Lord, they would begin to experience all the benefits of, of that kingdom. And that's what the Lord has done. To make us sons of the king, citizens of the of the kingdom and to give us the power to live life the way we ought to live it as as his children. The the second work frees us from the past. It sets aside the guilt of our sin. The third work provides the power to go on living in in a way that's pleasing to him. And then the fourth work is to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve for Zion. Zion was the uh, was the Temple Mount. It was off to the southeast of the old city of, uh, of Jerusalem. It was a flat-topped mountain on which the temple had been located. And now there was nothing there but a blackened, burned-out shell. No worship taking place in that temple. And they grieved over it because they knew it was their sin that had, that had brought about this ruin. And they looked over the mountainside, over the countryside in Judea, and they saw all these little cities that had been beautiful uh, little villages, and now they were burned, and and the land was devastated, and it was of their doing. But uh, when the servant comes, the countryside would be rebuilt, Zion would be restored, the temple would be built. And down in verse 4, Isaiah goes on to say, They, that is those who grieve for Zion, will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And that's what God says to us. It doesn't make any difference how how wasted you are. 
how far you've gone, uh, you can be rebuilt. Because, you see, the servant comes to encourage and to free from the guilt of the past and to give power for the present, to be what, what we long to be. And then what follows are two metaphors, two illustrations of what life is like when we understand who the servant is and, and, and we're subject to him. Uh, one of the characteristics of Old Testament prophecy is, is vivid imagery, which is almost impossible to explain. When you try to explain it, you ruin it. That's one of the one of the one of the problems I run into in trying to teach the Old Testament because you come to to these these beautiful figures and you try to explain them and you just take all the life out of them. You have to picture them. You can't explain them. You get the message more intuitively than than, than rationally. The first is a symbol of of human beauty, a, a person who's dressed in a festive garment, party clothes. Now, that doesn't mean much to us today, but in the ancient world, the way a person dressed was indicative of of who they were and what they were and how they felt. When they were mourning, they put ashes on their head and sackcloth on their bodies to to show outwardly how they were feeling inwardly. When they were joyful, they put on party clothes, festive garments, and that's what he's describing here first. He's going to provide for those who grieve for Zion to bestow on them, that is, those who grieve, a crown of beauty instead of ashes. He's playing on, the, on a Hebrew word for ashes and crown that sounds very much alike. It's the same three letters. Play on words. He says, instead of ashes on your head, I'm going to put a beautiful crown there. And instead of mourning and oil, the oil of, of gladness. Literally, the oil of sasson. So I suppose they had Vidal sasson perfume back there. <clears throat> And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. The word for despair here is used in the Old Testament for the eyes when they're dull and inexpressive. It has to do with feeling down and out and beat and lifeless and dead. I read someone this past week who said that he was so tired of life that he wishes he could take his life. But he said, I can't because I'm already dead and I know what it's like to be dead. Now that's... um, that's a spirit of despair, but he says, I'll, I'll replace that with a garment of, of praise. You see the picture of someone appropriately dressed for a gala occasion? It's a picture of beauty. And then another picture of beauty is, is that of a, a tree. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his beauty. The word that's translated splendor here in my translations, the same word is translated beauty in verse 3, to bestow on them a crown of beauty. It's the same idea will be a tree that will show forth God's beauty to the world. And it's a tree that he describes as a tree of righteousness. Now, in the Old Testament, righteousness is not a theological term. Uh, we think of it that way today. But really, it means something that's in accord with a standard, something that is right. Uh, we, we use the same, uh, the, the term justify or justification is a, is a similar term in English. It means to bring something in accord with the standard. When you justify your checkbook, hopefully you bring it in line with your bank statement, given a fudge factor of plus or minus a few dollars, and you try to try to align it. Well, that's what the word righteousness means. That's what justification means, being aligned with a standard. Now, what uh, the servant means here is that this tree will be aligned with the standard of treeness. In other words, it will be like a tree ought to be. 
Well, how ought a tree to be? Well, it ought to always have leaves. That's how you tell a tree, because it has leaves on it. So the point is, not that this is a righteous tree in the sense that it displays moral character, but it's a righteous tree in that it's a live oak. It always has trees. It always has leaves. And as a matter of fact, Canaanites and others always referred to live oaks as, a, as an oak of righteousness. That's what Isaiah has in mind. In other words, regardless of the season, the, 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 uh, whether it's oppressive or, or not, there will always be a luxuriant uh, perennial foliage. It's a beautiful tree. That's his point. And that's what we'll be as we appropriate the resources of, of the servant of the Lord. It'll be like a tree. I picture in my mind one of these thousand-year-old oaks planted in the, in the ground with roots that go way down into the soil, They're just imperturbable uh, pictures of, of, of uh, strength and stability. And, and that's what we can be. When we understand who the servant is and what he came to do, that's, what, that's why he was sent. To encourage us, to lift us up, to get us going again, to free us from our past, and to give us power to live so we can be a display everywhere we go of the beauty of Christ. I was sitting in a living room with a group of uh, students and college pastors and others this last Sunday down in California, and they were talking about their ministries on the campus, and someone asked the question uh, what, uh, of the group, what, what's your vision for this campus? And and someone told me what a student had said, some, uh, or rather one of the other pastors had said a week before, that his goal for that campus, his vision, was to walk across the campus and to display the beauty of Christ, to be counterculture in the sense that he's so like Christ, he's unlike the secular culture that he's in, so people will long for Jesus. And I thought, boy, what a great statement of, of purpose for someone's life. And that's why so many people are empty. They, they still believe that they're going to be satisfied by, by amassing things or gaining recognition or finding a mate or straightening their children out or whatever it may be that, that they're longing for. And that's what we're to be. We're to be like trees that display his beauty so people will long for, for him. I... Uh, I'm closing in on 50 here in another month, and I have come to the conclusion in all those years that there is no earthly satisfaction in the long run. We will never be satisfied with the pursuit of money or things or praise or power or affluence or influence or any of those things. They do not satisfy and that's why so many people are empty. They, they still believe that they're going to be satisfied by, by amassing things or gaining recognition or finding a mate or straightening their children out or whatever it may be that, that they're longing for. Jesus said, come unto me and you'll find rest for your souls. That's the only place we're going to find satisfaction. As C.S. Lewis put it, if you long for truth, then you will find heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. You'll be satisfied. But if you long for satisfaction, you'll find neither truth nor satisfaction. And in the end, you will have only awful emptiness. That's so true. 
And yet the servant has come to give his life, and life abundantly. Jesus said those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. They'll be satisfied. It's through longing for him and knowing him that we're filled. Let's pray. If you don't know Christ in this way, perhaps you'd like to, uh, you'd like to meet him. As our, our Lord himself put it, he stands at the door of our life and he knocks. If we open the door, he'll come in. If you'd like to have the Lord in your life, you can invite him in. It's all there for the taking. It can't be bought. It can't be purchased. It can only be received. Would you say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Make him yours. And, and what he has promised to do, he will do. He will free you from the guilt and pain of your past. And he'll give you power to live life the way you long to live it. And for those of us who know him, perhaps we need again this morning to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. Lord, we, we want to thank you this morning for coming. We want to thank the Father for sending you and for your great work that gives us what we've been looking for all of our life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.